This November, I'm going back to Italy, leading a food tour there, and I want to brush up on my Italian. And for that, I'm turning to Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, Sporkful listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash sporkful. That's half off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash sporkful today. I want to be the kind of person who doesn't look at the menu before the meal. There is a certain delight in a ritual to sitting down and getting the menu and kind of entering this world, the world of a restaurant. When we do the show, nine times out of ten, I am surprised. We've read in advance, probably months before, what they're famous for. I've promptly forgotten it (laughs) until I get to the restaurant. And the shock and delight that you see on my face is completely genuine. There's no acting on the show. I am really happy to be there and to be surprised. Except when it's bugs. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. You know, a great part about my job is that I get to go out for some pretty good meals. I mean, that's kind of why I got into this line of work, okay? And today, I'm going out for lunch with someone who gets to eat even more nice lunches than I do, Phil Rosenthal. He's the creator of one of the most well-known sitcoms of all time, Everybody Loves Raymond. And these days, he's host of the podcast Naked Lunch and star of the Netflix show Somebody Feed Phil, where he travels the world with wide eyes and an empty stomach, excited about every meal, whether it's cow soy in Thailand, shakshuka in Tel Aviv, or a sausage sandwich in Denmark. I think Phil and I are kindred spirits. I mean, I'm a radio guy who kind of stumbled into food. I didn't know much about it when I started this podcast, except that I love to eat it. And Phil's a TV guy who cared almost as much about the lunchtime buffet that would arrive on set as he did about the show production itself. We met up at Frenchette, a bistro in Lower Manhattan, a few blocks from the Freedom Tower. First thing we had to do, of course, was order. But for two people who think about food as much as Phil and me, that would not be a simple process. Phil, do you have a general menu strategy? Yes, I do. Tell me about it. What I just ate factors in and what I will be eating. Right. So tonight I'm going to Don Angie, which is a fantastic Italian restaurant. Right. And their pastas are amazing. So I won't be having, as much as I'd love to have the bucatini with sardines, I won't be having that today. And you just said eggs in the morning. You exactly. Said, so you're not going to have eggs. That's the strategy. Sometimes I like to read through a menu and I'll really try to imagine eating that thing. Is this like sparking joy sort of? And then you're either delighted or disappointed accordingly to how those expectations are met, which just happens to be everything else in life as well. <laughs> right. Expectations and are Expectations so key. are everything. Yeah. If you're going out to eat, do you ever look at the menu online in advance? Once in a while, but most of the time, I like to be surprised. Really? That's interesting. I I run into this issue sometimes. Maybe you have some advice for me on this, film. I will look at the menu hours or even days before the meal. Because I am by nature a planner, and it's hard for me. And I get excited. I don't get to go out to eat as much as I would like. I got young kids. Yeah. I'm busy. And so 
when I'm going out to a restaurant I'm excited to eat at, yes. I look forward to it very much. Yes. And I it's I can't resist. I want to look at the menu. I want to look forward to the meal. You should have a podcast about this. <laughs> and I will do that exercise of thinking to myself, what would this taste like? What do yeah. I want? And then I kind of make a decision in my head. Yeah. But then sometimes I get to the restaurant hours or days later and I'm in a different mood. Of course you are. Yes, and if you had breakfast, that affected you. And if, right. you, if you know you're having something for dinner, you're probably not going to get the thing maybe you expected to get when you first looked at it. Right. So so what, sh- should I not be looking then? What, what I mean, like, because cause then I feel like I have this issue. My brain and my stomach are like not aligned because I'm expecting that I was going there planning to eat one thing and I was in my head I was looking forward to it. My, now my stomach is saying, mm, we don't really want fish. Dan, lie down. Let me analyze you. <laughs> I think that are are you happy generally with your restaurant going experiences? Generally, yes. Okay, then you don't need to change it. But if you do feel unhappy, I would tell you maybe don't study it so much. So you keep that element of surprise. Go and enjoy it. Listen, don't you hate when the trailer gives away the whole movie now? It ruins the movie. Right. I knew that joke already. I saw it in the trailer. Right. Not laughing as hard now in the movie. That's, that's a good analogy. Yeah. What are you getting today? I mean, Let's... I feel like we're in a French restaurant, yeah. and I don't ever order eggs in a nice restaurant. Do it. I would love to see you get that. There's the brouillard, the soft scrambled eggs with comté cheese and truffles. Oh, man. Which, like, you know... I'm expensing this meal, so let's have some truffles. I think I see how you're leaning. I might do two things from the top section and not get the big entree. I think that's a pro move, Phil. After all this talk of ordering, see, you're a pro. The, The appetizers are often better and more interesting than the entrees. They have a sardine, and anytime I see sardines on a menu, I go for them because I happen to love them. Okay. So I might do that, and I might get the salad. And I'm happy to share it, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm all for sharing. All right. I think, I think I'm think i going to go two appetizers. Yeah. I'm going to get the brouillard, the soft scrambled eggs. Oh, I'm proud of you. Truffles, and yes. I'll share with you. And I just then, need a taste of that. I'm very intrigued by the bucatini with sardines, green onions, and chilies. All right. I'm very happy you're getting that. Because that just sounds like a great flavor combination. you got two things that I would get. Our server, Emily, came over to take our order and convinced me I needed one more item to go with my soft scrambled eggs. Our house-made baguette might be a vehicle to enjoy it even better. That was an excellent upsell. I just want to compliment you. As a former waiter myself, that was flawless. I'll take it. (laughs) I'm selling more of, I'm looking out for you. (laughs) Wow, which is probably the best upsell line I've ever heard. That's great. With our orders in and my psychological issues with menus resolved, Phil and I can relax and chat. As excited as Phil gets nowadays for a meal, as a kid, he was more obsessed with television. A little too much. My parents said, what are you going to do, get a job watching television? (laughs) And the punchline to that is when I did get a job in television, I sent them the biggest TV on the market at the time with a note on it that said, ha ha. Were you also obsessed with food growing up? I was. I didn't realize it at the time. I grew up in a house where food was not valued. Delicious food was not valued, I'll say. Both my parents worked. Neither of them had the time or inclination, patience, or I'm going to say talent to make delicious food. We didn't have a lot of money. So cheap was the cuisine of the house. 
once or twice that we went out ever, it was like a revelation to me that you could have food with flavor. And I used to literally, I mean, beg to go to McDonald's just because it had flavor. Both Phil's parents were born in Germany and were Holocaust survivors. His father, Max, was able to get out right after Kristallnacht, the night in the lead-up to World War II when Nazis raided Jewish neighborhoods across Germany. Phil's mother, Helen, was in a concentration camp in France. After the war, she lived in Cuba for a bit, before eventually arriving in the U.S. That might have informed the whole gestalt in the house. Well, tell me about that. Uh, it's hard. It's hard... And now, of course, I'm 100% filled with nothing but love and remorse at how I treated them as a child. For instance, when I was 10, I asked for the same Stingray bike that all the other kids had for my birthday. And my mother said, do you know what I got when I was 10? Now, when you're a 10-year-old, you don't care what your parents got when they were 10. You don't need the story of how they walked to school in the snow, let alone a Holocaust story. Right. So I only resented being the child of these people, which is, of course, extremely selfish and terrible, and I regret now. And, and how do you think that their experience affected their attitude towards food? It just wasn't important. They actually saw it as an unnecessary indulgence. And when I moved into Manhattan after college, in my 20s, I loved food so much. Like I had had this epiphany in college where I went to an Italian restaurant, very cheap, with some other freshmen at Hofstra University. And all I could afford was pasta and sauce, marinara sauce. So that's what I got. And I was expecting, talk about expectations, nothing. And it blew the top of my head off. Why is this so delicious? Not only did I never have it at home, there's an ingredient in here, these chopped up white bits of something that I didn't know what they were. I asked the kids that I was eating with, what is this? These little white, they said, what, garlic? I said, yes, garlic. <laughs> I've heard of it, I've never had it. <laughs> And it was the most incredibly delicious single ingredient I ever tasted in my life. And then I went garlic crazy. But it was like, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, when you open the door and now the movie's in color. As Phil got older, he sought out brighter and brighter colors. In his 20s, he lived in New York City, trying to make it as an actor. He started eating at some of the fanciest and most expensive restaurants in the city. But not often. Well, when my parents found out that once a year on my birthday, I was saving up to eat at Lutece or Le Grand Oui or Le Cote Basque or Le Bernardin, they thought I was out of my mind. I'm just flushing my money away. What am I doing? And I would try to explain that it's like a vacation. Once a year for the evening, I'm on the world's best vacation. It's transporting. Years later, when I could afford to bring them, I had to beg, plead, cajole. And I wouldn't stop bothering them until they could experience. And they came with me to Lutece. 
And my mother the whole time is saying, Philip, I'm really not interested in this kind of thing. This, I'm not, I'm like, isn't this nice? Yes, it's very nice. It's lovely. I said, you know, a lot of famous people, I, that does not interest me until she looked over and she said, oh, Philip, Philip. I said, what? 60 minutes, 60 minutes. And I look, it's Ed Bradley is sitting at the next table. <laughs> From 60, 60 minutes. And she almost dropped it. She loved him. Her food comes and I'll never forget it. She takes a bite and she goes, but well, this is very good. <laughs> like her particular dish because of what she chose. Right. Not anyone else's in the restaurant. Right. She's like, a lot of this is nonsense, yes, but, but what I'm what eating. I mean, thi- but this is very good. <laughs> and that was the attitude. But as a young actor, Phil was still mostly finding good meals where he could afford them, based on whatever odd job he had at the time to pay the bills. He worked as the manager of a deli after getting fired from his job as a security guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He fell asleep on a 300-year-old bed that was part of an exhibit. Eventually, Phil gave up acting and switched to writing, which is when his career started to take off. He got work on some big TV shows, which was when food became even more meaningful. He says for the writers, after hours in a windowless room, ordering dinner was the light at the end of the tunnel. But the bosses on those shows didn't always share Phil's food philosophy. Well, here's what happened. I was on a hit show. I was writing for someone else. I was on a hit show. I won't say the name of it. But a memo came around in the office. I remember it verbatim. On the official show stationery, we notice some of you are putting milk on your cereal when you come in in the morning. The milk is for coffee. The cereal are for snacks. We do not provide breakfast for you. Please do not put milk on your cereal. And I thought, holy cow. I said, if I'm ever lucky enough to have a show of my own, we're going to have milk on our cereal. (laughs) Coming up after the break, we dig in. Thank you so much. Our sardines are here. Oh, that's so pretty. Oh, and the eggs. Oh, my God. It looks absolutely spectacular. Let's taste it, shall we? Plus, we talk about Phil's legendary lunches on TV sets and how a pivotal food scene on Everybody Loves Raymond inspired him to start the next chapter of his career. Stick around. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. 
few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week's episode is a game. And guess what? You can play. Yes, it's the return of two chefs and a lie. Sporkful producer Andre Sohara gives me three people to interview. Two are real chefs. One is lying. I have no advance prep, can't look at the internet, and only get to ask each one five questions. Can I spot the liar? Can you? Play along. It's a fun one. It's up now. That's two chefs and a lie. All right, back to my lunch with Phil Rosenthal. When we left off, our first course had just arrived. I had the soft scrambled eggs with Comte cheese and shaved truffles with a warm, crusty baguette on the side. And Phil had his sardines. It was go time. All right, I'm going in. Oh, my friggin', friggin', friggin'. I want to curse. You can curse. It's okay. Holy shit. Oh, my God. Yes, oh, my God. These eggs are like the consistency almost of melted cheese. All right, bring it over here. Stick your fork in there. Mmm, damn. Good, huh? Damn good. Did you hear the crackle on this bread? Listen. Oh, you're zobbling with the bread. I'm, I, I'm sweeping the bread through the egg just like she recommended. I can't believe how luxe this lunch is, Dan. Already. This is hardcore, Phil. All right, back to Phil's story. Eventually, he was lucky enough to have a show of his own. A big one. In 1996, when he was in his mid-30s, Phil created and wrote the hit sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. And he made good on his promise that there would be cereal for everyone who worked on the show. That and a lot more. I took that to the extreme 
and you can ask anybody, we had the best craft service in town. That's the food for the cast and crew and writers and everybody who works there. I would take money from the production budget of the show and put it into food because that's how important it was to, to me in creating a feeling of goodwill and beyond that happiness on the set. People couldn't wait to come to work. What's he flying in now right, you, you, from you, Chicago You had deep dish New pizza York. from Chicago yes. or like Krispy Kreme donuts you back when it. they were only in the South. You flew you them it. into L.A. You, you had special food trucks coming. You and your relationship to food, especially among Hollywood writers, is legendary. Listen, it's nice to be remembered for something. <laughs> <laughs> On Everybody Loves Raymond, food wasn't just a big deal for Phil and the cast and crew behind the scenes. It was also a big part of the storylines. The show follows the everyday life of a middling sports writer named Ray, played by Ray Romano, and his wife, Deborah, played by Patricia Heaton. Ray's parents and brother live across the street and are always dropping by, invited or not. Phil once said in an interview that the show uses food to define the politics of the family. Ray's wife, Deborah, can't cook. But his mother? Marie, the mother, controls the whole family because she's a great cook. She has power over everyone. Because they would never do anything to piss her off because, God forbid, they don't get to eat that food. And if she gets pissed, she'll take her chocolate cake home. You got it. Or she, there was the time when uh, Deborah, her daughter-in-law, wanted a meatball recipe. She intentionally gave her the wrong recipe because she didn't want Deborah to be able to make meatballs as well as she could. The pole power struggle was Marie wanting to keep her children her children. And God forbid that Deborah should take her son away. So she could never let that happen. So it's beyond food, right? It's just she's using food as a way to keep control of not just Raymond, but the entire family. And she loved that Deborah was a lousy cook until one day she wasn't. And we did an episode called Deborah Makes Something Good. This is an all-time classic example of the show in its prime. Deborah makes brajol, a classic dish of beef rolled with fillings and cooked in sauce. Unlike most of what she makes, it's delicious. Ray brings the brajol across the street to his parents' place. His mother looks on suspiciously as his father and brother try it and love it. Are you sure your Deborah made this? I know, I know. I couldn't believe it either. She, she came up with some recipe. Recipe? Yeah, what? <laughs> Real cooks don't need recipes. <laughs> so Deborah can now cook the missing color in the Raymond Rainbow. You should ask Deborah how she makes this. <laughs> Later, Ray's father, Frank, appears at Ray and Deborah's door, holding flowers for Deborah. He asks sheepishly if there's any brajol left. He begins eating it, guiltily, stealthily, as if he's having an affair. Well, this is a beautiful thing. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> Suddenly, the door opens. It's Marie. She's caught Frank in the act of cheating on her cooking. I thought you were taking a bath. I was. I finished. Thank you for making it for me. You haven't made a bath for me in 35 years. Well, listen, Marie, I, this is not what it looks like. I'm not talking to you. In the end, Frank realizes that Marie is by far still the best cook in the family. They make up. And Frank? Yes? We'll never speak of this again. <laughs> Why Brajol? 
difficult. Wouldn't think that a novice chef or even a bad chef could even make it, let alone make it well. That's It had to be something that would blow everyone away in the family. Especially this Italian family that knows this dish that her that mom makes and only for special occasion. And here Deborah thought she'd try it and then does it. It needed to be something uh, unexpected. Exactly. So was any part of the relationship between Marie and Deborah, especially as it pertains to food, was any part of that taken from your life? Yep. Okay. <laughs> the food thing not being very nice to your daughter-in-law, that was my father's mother to my mother. That's where that came from. She would just belittle and make these little digs at my mom under the guise of a smile. And my mother was very frustrated. And a lot of the fights were about that. And so I related to this a lot because I saw it all the time growing up. Was your grandmother a better cook than your mother? Yes, but that wasn't hard. (laughs) My mother was phenomenal, by the way. I'm not going to sit here and let you badmouth my mother. (laughs) But I... uh, she cooking, I think she would even admit, not right. her strongest suit. Here's my salad. All right. Isn't that pretty? Come on. Thank you. That That's is a, a very beautiful nice thing. salad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start eating this with my hands. Yeah, please do. It just becomes more fun to eat salad with your fingers. I'm all for eating salad with your hands. I think, I think it's the best way to eat it. My wife is very disgusted. She thinks I eat with my hands too often. Because you're an animal. <laughs> <laughs> this bucatini is phenomenal. Yeah. Aren't you going to put a tiny bit of that yes. bucatini on that plate for me right there? <laughs> I was. Just gonna... I will send it back with some salad. Uh, you need a little bit of the other stuff in there, though. That's you, good. You that's need... good. That's good. It's got breadcrumbs on it too. Did I give you enough of that? Don't go crazy. Right. Yes, good. Everything was delicious. The pasta had sardines and a nice kick from the chilies, and more pasta dishes need to have breadcrumbs on them. Anyway. Everybody Loves Raymond ran for nine seasons and ended in 2005. Over that time, Phil became able to afford many more nice dinners and to travel the world, not just relying on one fancy dinner to transport him to a different place. The show had a lasting impact on both Phil and Ray. We both changed each other's lives, not just in making Raymond, but in this example. At the end of season one, I asked Ray Romano where he was going on his uh, hiatus between season one and season two. And he said, I go to the Jersey Shore. And I said, that's nice. Have you ever been to Europe? And he said, nah. And he said, why not? And he said, I'm not really interested in other places. And I thought, wow, we got to do that episode. He goes, what do you mean? I go, we got to do that episode where you go to Europe as you with that attitude and you come back as me, someone excited about travel. They actually went to Italy to shoot the episode. In it, Ray's in a quaint little Italian alley. He starts kicking around a soccer ball with some kids. Then he turns around and notices a pizza stand. He gets a slice. This is awesome. Hmm? Awesome. Awesome. You know awesome? Uh, Magnifico. Grazie. Prego. This is like the best pizza I ever had, man. You like more? Hell yes, I want more. And the arc of the character that I wrote, I saw happen to Ray Romano, the person, And in that moment, I thought, wouldn't it be great to do this for other people? And so I changed his life 
in that he enjoys travel now, and he changed mine in inspiring me to do Somebody Feed Phil. Somebody Feed Phil is Phil's Netflix show. On the surface, it may look like other food shows you've seen, where the host travels around the world eating incredible meals. But the key difference is that Phil is not a chef. In fact, he has no special food expertise whatsoever. He just loves to eat. I would watch Bourdain and I would say, he's amazing, a superhero. I'm never doing that. (laughs) Isn't it refreshing to see one of these shows with an idiot? (laughs) Yes! (laughs) You're not supposed to agree with me, Dan. So Phil isn't the most adventurous person out there. He prefers a hotel bed and a pillow to a tent in a sleeping bag. Still, just like he pushed Ray Romano to explore, he tries to push himself, too. There's so much to be said for any kind of travel, any kind of, you know, stepping out of one's comfort zone. I realized getting on a plane or even taking your car to another state is a big deal. Or saving up and going out to a nice dinner as you did when you were exactly. in your 20s. Or even just walking down the street in Paris, for example, just looking at the trees on the boulevards. I thought, look how they take care of them. Look how beautiful the trees are. But don't you know, when I came home, I started to notice the trees on my block in Washington Heights and say, hey, we have nice trees too. They're different, but they're also great. The comedian Patton Oswalt once described Phil as the Mr. Rogers of food shows. It's a good comparison. Just as Mr. Rogers would be delighted seeing how a cardboard box factory works, Phil gets excited every time the food comes out. In one episode, once the meal is within sight, he starts pumping his fist in the air. For the first few seasons of Somebody Feed Phil, his parents, Max and Helen, were featured on the show. At the end of every episode, Phil would get on a video call with them and tell them a little bit about what he'd learned or eaten, like when he danced the tango in Buenos Aires. Oh. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm very nice. I love to see you dancing the tango. That was my favorite. That was the most frightening thing I've done on the show so far. You look terrific. Yeah, but, but uh, you danced uh, a little bit uh, clutchy. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. Stick to what you do best, your uh, gift for gab. Forget the dancing. No, don't forget it. I think you did very well. I don't agree with him. In each episode, Phil's father would also share a joke. His mother died in 2019 and his dad in 2021. I asked Phil how it felt to make the latest season of the show without them. Hard, I guess, emotionally... But I had this idea when my, first when my mom passed, I wanted to keep my father in the show for two reasons. One is obvious, he's great and funny. And two is it would involve him in life still. And that was very sweet to have him tell a joke, which he was great at. And right after he died, I did think of their segment on the show, What Would I Do Now? And it came to me very quickly. What if I called my funny, famous friends and they would do a joke for Max and that would keep the spirit alive and of my mom too because her sense of humor was is represented as well. Did your parents ever get used to fancy restaurants? You know what? More and more they did. It's not something that they would kind of seek out on their own, but they seemed a little happier when I would take them (laughs) than the first time. So I took them, I would take them on vacation whenever I could. 
one memorable trip to Venice, Italy. We were staying in a very nice hotel. And all of a sudden, there was a knock on my door as I was getting ready for dinner. And my dad was standing in the hallway of the nice hotel in his underwear. I said, Dad, we're not at home. And he said, Mom fell. Oh, my God. So I ran into the room, and there's my mom sitting on the bed holding her cheek with a, with a towel, and there's, there's blood. She had slipped getting out of the tub. Well... I call downstairs. What are they? They send in Venice an ambulance boat. And she said, you go. I'm so sorry. You go have the dinner. Don't worry about me. Don't I'm worry fine. about me. So my wife went with her to the hospital on the ambulance boat. And I took my dad and the kids to, to the dinner. And um, she showed up a little late with 11 stitches in her cheek and an ice bag on her face and she ate that dinner she wasn't gonna miss it yeah That's Phil Rosenthal. He's the star of Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, and he also hosts the podcast Naked Lunch with his friend, the writer David Wilde. Each week they have lunch and chat with celebrities and friends from the entertainment world. It's a lot of fun. Check out Naked Lunch wherever you got this podcast. Phil's also got a book coming out in October, Somebody Feed Phil the Book. It'll include some of the most requested recipes from the show, including Phil's favorite sandwiches from San Francisco to Tel Aviv. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your books. And if you want a chance to win your very own copy of it, we're doing a giveaway. All you gotta do is sign up for the Sporkful's newsletter by July 31st to be entered to win. If you're already on our mailing list, you're already entered into this and all of our giveaways. So get on that list. If you don't win this one, maybe you win the next one. You must live in the U.S. or Canada to win. Sign up now at sporkful.com slash newsletter. Next week on the show, I'm going to do a little time traveling to correct past wrongs. I'm visiting L.A. and seeking out a slice of coconut cake that I passed up years ago. But will I find it? Will the universe be set right? Listen next week to find out. Quick reminder that we're doing a live show this Wednesday night at the Bell House in Brooklyn. There are a few tickets left. Get yours at sporkful.com slash live. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producers... Andres O'Hara. And... Johanna Mayer. Our editor is... Tracy Samuelson. Additional editing by... Tanaka Maria Muvavadidwa. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. Special thanks to everyone at Frenchette in New York. They were super nice and the food was amazing. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Eric Eddings and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. I'm Leo from Austin, Texas, reminding you to eat more, eat better, eat more better. <laughs>